Shalom, Yevarech etchem Adonai. Welcome, hello, my name is Benjamin Cantor, I am the host of the Biblical Hebrew Podcast, the official podcast of BiblicalHebrew.com, and today we are going to talk about a mistake. A mistake that almost everybody who teaches Biblical Hebrew as a living language will probably make at some point or has already made. Maybe some of them know it already, maybe some of them don't know it, but it's a big and common mistake. Now, before we talk about what exactly that mistake is, I thought this sort of a podcast would be a good one to do early on in our podcast series, right? This is just the second podcast. And that's because it's really important for those of us who teach biblical Hebrew as a living language to do so with humility, to admit that there are some weaknesses to doing this, some things that we're going to get wrong, right? Even the method, right? It's not perfect. And as we try to speak and teach fluency in this ancient language, we're going to mess up sometimes. But we have to be ready, being in a community, being open to seeing our mistakes, our weaknesses, and then correcting them. But that's actually one of the great things about this method, is that you can identify mistakes sometimes more quickly, and then correct them and change and be that much more authentic in your biblical Hebrew. So I want to say a bit more about this, because, you know, I've, I've been teaching ancient languages as living languages for years. And I think maybe the main strength of this method, the thing that's easiest to get right really well, is in the realm of morphology. Now, what do we mean by morphology? We mean how a, a particular word might change and inflect, right? So if you think of a verb in Hebrew like katavti, I wrote, right? So you say katavti, I wrote, katavta, you wrote, katavti, you feminine wrote, katav, he wrote, katva, she wrote, and so forth, right? The morphology, how a word changes. And because that is often isolated to just a single word, it doesn't always have to be, but because it's often isolated to just a single word, how that word changes in isolation, it's really easy to sort of replicate that with different communicative drills and to really internalize the morphology uh, quite well. And there's not a lot of drawbacks there in the communicative approach. And, and I think we who use the communicative approach, teaching biblical Hebrew as a living language, do great with this, typically, right? It, it works a lot better than just looking at paradigm charts and trying to memorize a whole table of verb forms. Being able to speak them back and forth in different language drills really helps to internalize them. And I would hope that point would be uncontroversial, that the communicative language approach really works quite well for that. However, in some other areas of grammar, I think sometimes we as communicative language teachers of biblical Hebrew are just not as strong, right? In, in something like syntax, we might learn sort of the general principles and might not take into account some of the nuance and some of the odd syntactical patterns that we find in, in the biblical text. Now, that's not a huge problem, right? Because even the same thing happens with introductory biblical Hebrew grammars, right? You can learn the more common forms in, in the classroom, and then you'll come across something in the biblical text and it won't really make sense. But that's not a huge problem, right? Because if you learn the general principles, you read the biblical text more and more whether you're doing grammar translation or communicative approaches, and you learn more and more about the nuances that are there. But what I think is, is a bit ironic is that in the realm of semantics, we who teach biblical Hebrew as a living language tend to show some neglect there. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. There's no reason why it would have to be. But for some reason, we don't pay as much attention to semantics as we should, right? We often just look at a, a gloss of a Hebrew word and think, okay, where might that gloss fit 
from what I know in English, and then we just use Hebrew that way. And, and that's really a mistake, of course, right? Or those of us who know modern Hebrew don't always separate out the semantics of modern Hebrew from that same word in biblical Hebrew, and that's also a, a, another kind of mistake. And I think one of the places where you see this phenomenon more clear than perhaps anywhere else is with the word davar or devarim, right? Which is, is often rendered with a gloss in introductory textbooks as word matter thing, word speech matter thing, something like that. Davar, right? Very common word in biblical Hebrew. And I must confess that when I first started teaching biblical Hebrew, I would make a mistake with this word. Now, what was the mistake that I made with this word? Well, you could make it either from knowing English and looking at that gloss, or you could make it from knowing modern Hebrew, which I do. In English, right, we see this word, speech, thing, matter, and the mistake has to do with the gloss thing. Or in, in modern Hebrew, davar really does just mean thing more commonly than anything else, and the meanings of speech or word or affair, I mean, they're there, but they're not really part of the colloquial register. If you hear davar in the colloquial register of modern Hebrew, it simply means thing. And not necessarily an abstract thing, but a literal physical item or object, a physical thing. And so the mistake that I would make when I first started teaching biblical Hebrew whether it was due to influence of the English gloss thing or my knowledge of modern Hebrew, was to use the word davar to refer to a physical thing in the classroom, right? Whether I told a student to pick up a thing from the table or I picked up something and I said, what is this thing holding a physical object? Using the word davar for something like that is incorrect according to biblical Hebrew usage. Let's just stop right there and outline what the mistake is that this whole podcast is about. The mistake is when speaking biblical Hebrew to use the word davar plainly to refer to a physical thing or object in the classroom, right? That is a no-no, you cannot do that according to biblical Hebrew. Davar does not mean that. Now, there are some places where you can look and say, oh, well, maybe here, there, there. We're going to come to all of those. We're going to come to all those examples later in this podcast. But I just want to outline at the beginning, perhaps for those who won't listen to the whole thing, that that is the mistake. Do not use davar to refer to a physical thing or object in the classroom. It doesn't mean that in biblical Hebrew. Davar means word, speech, matter, something like that, event, action, doesn't mean physical object or thing. Okay. So we're going to explain all this. Now, what do I want to do in the rest of this podcast? I want to do three things. First, I want to outline the typical uses of the word davar or devarim in the Hebrew Bible. Second, I want to discuss those rare cases in which you might think that, oh, davar here is referring to a physical thing or object. And then third, having shown that it doesn't really refer to a physical object, davar plainly, I want to discuss what can we do if we want to just refer to a physical object or thing in biblical Hebrew, whether it's different lexemes or grammatical structures, how are we going to do this? Okay, so to begin, davar dvarim, this lexical entry, what does it mean in biblical Hebrew? Well, the three most common meanings, which will generally cover your bases when you're encountering this word or wanting to use it, are davar as word, davar as matter, or davar as action. Okay, so if you read in Exodus 4.30, you see 
וידבר אהרון את כל הדברים אשר דיבר אדוני אל משה. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Okay. First uh, Samuel 9.10. So this is this first meaning, right? Word or speech, something like that. First Samuel 9.10. ויומר שאול לנערו טוב דברך. And Saul said to his servant, what you said is good. Tov dvarcha, you're saying, right? Dvarcha. Jeremiah 13:12. Ve'amarta alehem et hadavar hazeh. And you shall speak to them this word. Okay, now we could go on, but check the blog post corresponding to this podcast. It's in the description and also on the website, biblicalhebrew.com slash blog. And you can find more examples. Okay, in other cases, דבר might be used to refer to specific matters or affairs, right? Um, here in Genesis 12, 17, And the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues on account of the matter of Sarai. Right, Dvar Sarai, the matter of Sarai, or Al Dvar Sarai, on account of Sarai, the wife of Abram. Okay, Deuteronomy 19.4. Veze Dvar HaRotzeach. Okay, and this is the matter of the manslayer. Okay, First uh, Samuel 10.16. Vayomer Shaul el Dodo, haged higid lanu, ki nimtzeu ha'atonot, ve'et Dvar ha'melucha, lo higid lo. And Saul said to his uncle, he surely told us that the donkeys had been found, but the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell us, or which Samuel had spoken about, he did not tell us. I didn't read the whole verse, but... Uh, so that's matter, okay? And along these lines, there's also cases where might refer to events, and these are the places where we get the translation of thing or things frequently in English, right? So Genesis 22.1, ויהי אחר הדברים האלה, והאלוהים נישא את אברהם. And after these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham sorry. Joshua 24.29, ויהי אחרי הדברים האלה. And after these things, 1 Kings 13.33, אחר הדבר הזה, after this thing. And so even though in these cases we render it as thing or things, we might just as well render davar dvarim as event or events, right, after these events, because it's not referring to physical things. Now, finally, the, the other place where you might get davar rendered as thing is when it refers to an action, right? Genesis 20.10, for example, Ma ra'ita ki asita et haddavar hazeh. What did you see that you did this thing, haddavar hazeh, right? Genesis 21:26 Lo yadati mi asa et hadavar hazeh I do not know who has done this thing However in these cases davar as thing doesn't mean a physical thing of course but it means an action right davar refers to an action why did you do this action this deed something like that And so all of these main types of the uses of davar whether for word speech saying that sort of semantic range, or matter-affair event, or action, all of these are abstract, right? They do not refer to physical objects or items. They do not refer to physical entities. So, 
let's move to the second section of the podcast then. What about those cases where davar might just mean a physical thing? Are there ever any places where davar can mean a physical thing, a physical object? Well, there are some, but they all occur in either one of two very specific environments, very specific patterns, right? The first is when davar is negated in some way, where you might think of the combination of lo, followed or en, lo, followed by davar later in the verse for the meaning of nothing or something like that. And the other is followed by the quantifier kol, which together with davar could be construed as something like anything, kol davar. Okay, so let's look at these and then we'll try and explain why that patterning happens the way it does. So first, davar when it is negated, perhaps with the meaning of nothing. Okay, so Deuteronomy 2.7 Ze arba'im shana Adonai Elohecha imach lo hasarta davar these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Lo hasarta davar. Right, presumably being in the desert, you have not lacked anything. You've lacked nothing, could presumably refer to some physical object, right? But even that is not, you know, 100% clear. But let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, Exodus 9.4. Vehifla Adonai ben mikne Yisrael uven mikne Mitzrayim velo yamut mikol livne Yisrael davar. And the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the sons of Israel will die, right? And from all that belongs to the sons of Israel, not a thing will die, right? Now that presumably has to refer to physical entities because we're talking about livestock or people or, or things like that not dying. It would presumably have to refer to physical entities that are not going to be affected by, by the plague in Egypt. Okay, 2 Kings 4.41. Vayomer uqhu qemah vayashlech el hasir vayomer tzak la'am veyochelu velo haya davar ra' basir. He said, so bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour it out for the people so that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Okay, there, inside a pot, that's something that you would assume would have to be physical. There's another example. And then there's sort of a series of verses uh, about Hezekiah showing different things to the visitors from Babylon. And I'll just read one of them, but there's a number of verses like this. Isaiah 39.2 Lo haya davar asher lo heram hizqiyahu beveto uvechol memshalto There was nothing that Hezekiah did not show them in his house in all his kingdom, right? There was nothing. Lo haya davar And of course, he's showing them this physically, so this has to be physical things or items. There's more verses, but again, go to the corresponding blog post on the website. Okay, so that's when it's negated. Now let's look at some examples when it's preceded by the quantifier kol, right? Every, all, any. So kol davar together means something like anything. Okay, so Leviticus 5, 2. O nefesh asher tiga bechol davar tame. Or if anyone touches anything unclean, tiga bechol davar tame, touches anything unclean. 
Okay, presumably this has to be a physical entity because it, the verse is talking about touching something that will make you unclean, right? And then Numbers 31.23, Kol davar asher yavo va'esh, ta'aviru va'esh v'taher. Anything that can stand going through fire, you shall make it pass through the fire and it will be clean, right? So there, something that has to pass through the fire is clearly something physical. Okay, Judges 18.10. Now here we have something that seems like a little bit of both. For God has given it, talking about the land, into your hand, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So here we have en followed by kol devar. So there you get both the negation and the quantifier. So how do we make sense of this if in the thousands and thousands of places where we get davar, dvarim, etc. in the Bible, none of them refer to a physical object or entity, but then in these particular cases where you have lo followed by davar or, or ein followed by davar or kol followed by davar, suddenly we can get it referring to a physical object or entity. How do we make sense of this? Well, there is an article by Adina Moshavi who, if you don't know Adina Moshavi, she's one of my favorite biblical Hebrew scholars, linguists, I, I think in particular for things that are actually going to really practically help you in the way you sort of just chew on Hebrew and use it and read it. I, I really, really like her work. She's a great scholar. And so she has a couple articles on the idea that a word like davar in certain contexts can be used as a negative polarity item. Now, what is a negative polarity item? Well, it is a particular word or expression in a language that occurs grammatically in a negative clause, right? So in a clause that's negated with no or not or something like that, or just generally in a non-affirmative clause. So that could be something like an interrogative, right? A question, or it could be a conditional, right? The if this, 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 the if part of the sentence, something like that. So it's a particular word or, or, or expression or phrase that occurs in these sorts of clauses. Now there's two types of negative polarity items. The first is non-emphatic and the second is emphatic, right? So in English, we might think of the word anything in a particular context, right? I can't say a simple sentence affirmatively as I saw anything, right? That doesn't really work grammatically in English. However, if it's in a non-affirmative context, I can use it, right? I can say, I didn't see anything. Or I can use it in a question. Did you see anything? Or I can use it in a conditional. Uh, if you see anything, let me know. Or I can use it in what, and again, all this is from Moshavi, I can use it in what's called a covertly negative predicate. And that simply means that the verb itself has sort of a, a negative connotation to it, and that affects how you read the, uh, the anything part of the, of the phrase. So he failed to see anything, right? So all of these are examples of what might be considered a non-emphatic negative polarity item. Now there's also emphatic negative polarity items, which are, are known as minimizers, and they can kind of give you just like the lowest bit possible on a, on a scale, right? So if you say something like, John didn't lift a finger to help, right? Or, you know, did John lift a finger to help? 
or if John lifts a finger to help, I'll eat my hat, right? And things like this, where the idea is to sort of minimize what actually might have happened or something like that. And so if we return to our discussion of biblical Hebrew davar and the particular context in which it can refer to a physical entity or an object, we find that these particular contexts, right, either in the phrase lo davar, no thing, nothing, or not a thing, or kol davar, anything, we find that these patterns correspond quite nicely with those we see for negative polarity items. They're not occurring in contexts which we would call affirmative. They're occurring in these non-affirmative contexts, whether negated or, or something like that. And so, and Adina Moshavi makes this argument, right? Not just based on this, but based on a number of pieces of evidence, and I'll just refer you to the articles in the bibliography of the blog post to check it out further, that... Davar, in a phrase like lo davar or kol davar, has become grammaticalized as a negative polarity item in the Bible. And so when you're dealing with davar, you actually should think of it as there being two lexical entries for davar. One is sort of the ordinary noun davar as word, speech, matter, action. And then another is sort of the negative polarity item davar, and that matches quite nicely with what we saw before. So if we go back to some of the examples we saw before, right? Lo hasarta davar in Deuteronomy 2.7. You have lacked nothing, right? You have not lacked a thing, right? You can see how that might be sort of used as a negative polarity item as sort of a minimizer. And then if we look at the kol davar, right? Um, this is Leviticus 5.2. O nefesh asher tiga bechol davar tameh or if anyone touches anything at all unclean, right? You can kind of see how you might think of it in that way. And so the semantics of a negative polarity item cannot be used as justification for imputing the same semantics to the corresponding noun, right? So if Moshavi is right, which I think she is, that the ordinary noun davar exists as word, matter, speech, action, but then there's also a sort of grammaticalized negative polarity item, davar, then these are two separate entries, right? And so whatever semantics we find for the negative polarity item, you can't then retroject onto the ordinary noun, davar. These are operating in two different contexts. And specifically, because a negative polarity item cannot be used in an affirmative context, right? It has to be in a negated clause or an interrogative clause or a conditional clause or something like that. And so you, you can't look at these examples where davar comes after lo or after kol to refer to a physical item and say, see, look, davar refers to a physical item because this is the negative polarity item davar and not the ordinary noun davar. And I think this is really quite elegant. And just to further support Moshavi's work, I actually wasn't aware of these articles when I started writing this blog post. And I basically had almost everything out, uh, all the data, all the examples I gathered, these two groups of patterning after law and negation and after call. And, you know, I saw the data, I was trying to make sense of it. I realized something was going on with those particular contexts. And then I was very happy to find Moshavi's articles that explained it as a negative polarity item because she's a much better linguist than I am. And she just put words and, and really helpful uh, theoretical framework and methodology to it. And, and so I think, you know, to, to say just that I, I was noticing this same thing, just to, to further drive home the point that I think she's right, and I think this is a really elegant solution to the distribution of the data. 
Now, I want to pause here and make a comment for those interested in the history of the language who are probably wondering, okay, so if devar doesn't already mean physical object or thing in biblical Hebrew, when does it take on that meaning? Because we do have that meaning in modern Hebrew. Well, there is evidence that it already has that meaning to some degree, at least in rabbinic Hebrew. So in Mishnah Ba'achot 6.3, for example, we find when they're talking about blessings and how you bless different things, al davar she'en gidulav min ha'aretz, etc., etc., etc. So over something that does not have its growths from the earth, al davar she'en gidulav min ha'aretz. So there, presumably, davar refers to something that you're going to be saying a blessing over, so there it can be physical object or, or thing. Now, According to Moshavi, this is not an extension of the negative polarity item from Biblical Hebrew. It probably is a different semantic development from one of the abstract meanings of davar in Biblical Hebrew, right? So I, I, I wonder if it would maybe come from something like the abstract meaning of action, right? Lama asita et davar why did you do this action thing? And then maybe that can be extended when that action has some sort of overlap with making something. And you could see maybe a context like that, but there's other possible developments in any case. And, and I wonder if, if perhaps language contact at a later stage might have also had something to do with it. Okay, so if that's the case, if davar generally in affirmative context should not be used to refer to a physical object or thing in biblical Hebrew, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that it ever is. It's only in these negative polarity item non-affirmative contexts where we get it then how do we say physical thing or object in biblical Hebrew, right? If we as teachers are going to try and process this and let it affect our speech, then we might want to still say thing when referring to a physical object. So how do we do that? How do we do the equivalent of that, at least? Well, there's a few different ways to do this. I mean, one, this is what happened to me. As I, as I realized my error years ago when I started reading, trying to think of different ways to supplement for what I felt like I was missing now, one of the first things I noticed was this nice phrasing that you get in Genesis 3 where you actually just leave out the object of a verb and you might be able to render it with something like something in English, right? So if we look at Genesis 3, 6, Vat. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a pleasure for the eyes and that the tree was desirable for making wise. And she took some of its fruit and ate, right? And she took from its fruit, literally. Or Genesis 3.12. Ha'isha asher natatta immadi, hi natnalli min ha'etz va'ochel. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me something from the tree, and I ate. Natnalli min ha'etz, right? She gave me from the tree, she gave me something from the tree. Right? So in each of these cases, this phrase min ha'etz sort of substitutes for whatever the object was. There's no explicit object, but it's presumably something, fruit from the tree, right? But you just say min ha'etz. And so you also see this with not just the preposition min, but you get in Ezekiel 10.1, va'er'e v'hinne el asher al rosh ha'kruvim ke'evin sapir. Here, ke'evin sapir is the subject of the sentence, right? So, and I looked, and there on the expanse that was over the heads of the sherubim was something like a sapphire stone, Right? Ke'evin sapir, 
that's what's over the heads of the Krovim. And so here you can kind of see how this prepositional phrase might might in some cases take the place of, of something you want uh, that might correspond to something or this, right? And, and you can also just leave out the object, right? Numbers 3520. And if he pushed him out of hatred or threw something at him, right? Hebrew simply says, or threw at him, right? But threw something at him. And so we can see how this might be uh, the sort of phrase you might use in particular context in class where you might want to say something, but you just leave the word out and it works fine in Hebrew. So that's one way you can do it, right? You might say, take from the table. And you mean take some of the things, things that are on the table, right? I've, I've done that in class and, and that seems to be okay and better parallels the biblical style than using something like dvarim, which of course would not. Okay, so that's one way you can do it. You can use these prepositional phrases or leave out the object. The other way to do it is with the word kli, right? Now, I think there's actually a big problem with the way the word kli is glossed in many biblical Hebrew lexica or introductory textbooks. And you'll find that it's often glossed as something like utensil or vessel, which I probably use about seven to ten times a year, right? These are not common words in somebody's colloquial everyday speech. And just the general language register of dictionaries and, and grammar material is a problem in my mind because it makes it seem like none of these words were actually used in daily life in a way. But let's leave that aside for a moment. There's a way to gloss this word better, I think. Uh, it's not a perfect overlap with the English word thing or object, but I think we as scholars, students, teachers, certainly students of biblical Hebrew, I think would have a much better understanding of the semantics of the words davar and kli if they were glossed as, so for davar would be glossed as word, matter, action, and then kli would be glossed as vessel, object, physical thing. I think this would help a lot, right? And And it would avoid confusion. Now, I'm not saying that the word kli can take the place of any time we want to use English thing for a physical object or modern Hebrew davar. It can't, but it gets close to covering a lot of comparative context, right? So let me just share a few examples that I think show that it's quite versatile and not just for utensil or instrument, right? Okay, so Genesis 31, 37. Ki when you searched through all my things, kol kelai, what did you find of all the things of your house? Mikol klevetecha. Put it here before my brothers and your brothers that they may judge between us. Okay, so here kelai is just all, you know, my things, my stuff. And then klevetecha, the things of your house, your stuff, right? So presumably this can encompass just about anything that might be in somebody's house, right? If you found a scarf or some clay figure, I don't know. It seems to account for a lot. Okay, Exodus 22, 6. If a man gives to his neighbor money or... Kelim, right? Goods or things to store, to keep. 
right? So here, kelim seems to be anything you might loan to a neighbor to keep safe. That's not money. Okay, so that could be clothing, that could be a tool, that could be dishes, it could be a lot of stuff. Okay, and then Jonah 1.5. Vayir'u hamalachim, vayiz'aqu ish el elohav, vayyatilu et hakkelim asher ba'oniya el hayyam lehaqel me'alehem. And the sailors feared and called out every man to his God, and they cast the things that were in the ship into the sea to lighten the load for them. Right? They cast the things that were in the ship. Okay, so hakkelim just refers to all the stuff that's in the ship. So presumably that could account for a lot. And like I said, even though it's often just glossed as vessel or instrument, this, I think, gives us a narrow idea of what it can mean, right? We talked about it referring to anything in a house, Genesis 31, 37, something you might lend your neighbor that's not money, Exodus 22, 6, the cargo in a ship, Jonah 1, 5, uh, something made of leather, we didn't read this, but Numbers 31, 20, something made of wood, Numbers 31, 20, and clothing, Deuteronomy 22, 5. So I think, you know, it'd be hard on a case-by-case basis to just give a blank check and say you could use this for any physical object, and I don't think you could, but there are many places where you can use it and you can just search out in the biblical text if you're looking to use it to refer to something in particular can it use for can it be used for this sort of item physical item and and in many cases i think you'll find that the answer is yes because it's used for a wide variety of things in the bible but if it seems like you know this null object or prepositional phrase thing doesn't quite fit right doesn't feel right and kli kalim don't really seem to do the trick the other method that I might use is to just do some sort of specific categorization. And what I mean by that is there's often when we go from English to in ancient language, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, we will often find that we like to use these big category words just like thing or something like that. But in the ancient language, they would they would often use something more specific, right? So we might want to say, pick up all sorts of items on a table, whether it's a toy animal or a house or a plant or a cup and call them all things. Whereas maybe we want a few more categories when we're talking in ancient Hebrew. So we might say, you know, haya or behema or something like that when we're dealing with the animals. Then maybe kli when we're dealing with the dishes or the tools or other things like that. Maybe beged, begadim for types of clothing and garments. And so you might just find something else that's a that's a more specific category you know so instead of picking up something and calling it this thing you might say you know hazot, right what is this animal or you know something like that okay now before we finish uh and conclude and kind of sum up our findings i want to talk about the word meuma right this kind of gets my honorable mention right because the indefinite pronoun meuma meaning anything, is also used as a negative polarity item in the biblical text. But there might be a couple cases where you could look at it and think, oh, I, this means uh, something, and I might use this instead of thing or devar, which I want to use in that way, but can't. And, I mean, uh, the same things apply that we said for devar above, right? So if you look at Genesis twenty-two twelve, 12, and do not do anything to him, right? Or 1 Samuel 2026, And Saul did not say anything on that day, right? So again, meaning anything, but used as a negative polarity item. The same sorts of principles apply as we found above for lo devar and kol devar. And so you hear 
even have this really nice example of a physical item with meuma, but again, it's the same thing, a negative polarity item in 1 Samuel 12.4. Vayomru, lo ashaktanu velo ratsotanu velo lakahta miyad ish meuma. And they said, you have not oppressed us, you have not treated us harshly, and you have not taken anything from the hand of a man. Okay, so here we see the same patterning again, where meuma, a negative polarity item, with lo can be used to refer to a physical item. But there's just one place where it's not negated, but it is used to refer to a physical item. This is Second Kings 5.20. It's talking about uh, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. He's going after Naaman because uh, uh, Elisha has refused to take any gifts from Naaman, but Gehazi is thinking, no, we should at least get something. And so we read the words of Gehazi, Vayomer Gehazi, Naar Elisha, Isha Elohim, Hine Hasach Adoni et Naaman Arami Hazemi Kahat Miyado et Asher Hevi. Hai Adonai, Kim Ratsti Aharav, Vela Kahtim it. And Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has prevented Naaman, this Aramean, so as not to receive from his hand what he had brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and receive something from him. But again, here it's used as a negative polarity item, right? And then receive something, anything at all from him. Right, that's the sort of nuance. So it's not something that we would use in a general affirmative context. It's this negative polarity item. Okay, so to conclude then, let's sum everything up. How should we use davar and kli in the classroom when we're speaking biblical Hebrew as a living language? Well, or davar, kli, and anything else, right? That's related to this topic. So, davar, dvarim, should only refer to words, speech, matters, affairs, and actions, events, things like that. Do not use it to refer to physical objects or physical things, right? I mean, you can if you're using it in that negative polarity context, right? The lo davar or kol davar, something like that. You know, lo lakahta min shulhan davar. You did not take anything from the table, right? Or kol davar asher tiqah min shulhan lecha yihyeh. Anything you take from the table shall be yours, right? Something like that. But again, understand that this is basically a different dictionary entry than the davar uh, of the ordinary noun, meaning word, speech, matter, effect, uh, affair, action, event, right? This is just for these very specific negative polarity contexts. Now, you could even, based on Moshavi's work, use it in a context that doesn't necessarily have to have kol or lo before it, maybe in a conditional sentence. But again, that just gets a bit more complicated and is probably not going to be easy to master right off the bat. But there are other negative polarity item, uh, non-affirmative contexts that don't necessarily have to include the words lo or kol before it. And you could use davar to refer to a physical item in that context, like in a conditional sentence, like im ra'ita davar, if you have seen anything, maybe something like that, right? But I don't know, you know, you have to search out the Bible for those examples. This blog post really isn't getting into those. But you can use it in that way too. But as a general affirmative, like look at this thing on the table or take this thing from the table or what's this thing in my hand? Definitely not. Do not use davar. Just think of davar as only meaning word, speech, matter, affair, action to start out. And if you want to build your fluency in the sort of negative polarity item 
aspect of it than read Moshavi's writings and, and search out those contexts. Okay, so if we can't use davar to refer to a physical object or thing in these affirmative contexts, look at this thing in my hand, take a thing from the table, what do we do? Well, we put out a few different ways that you could do it, right? Take from the table to mean take a thing from the table. That's fine, right? Or leave out the object entirely. Come to the table and take, right? This works. You can leave it out in certain contexts. But if you need a word, if you need a word to give you that meaning of thing, object, item, physical object, I would go with kli. Right? Double check the biblical context as you're preparing for class. Make sure it's not some out there situation where it maybe wouldn't be used, but find at least something comparable. And kli, kalim, can often be a good good parallel for these sorts of situations where if you're wanting to say davar in modern Hebrew or thing in English, maybe kli, kalim, is your go-to word. That's what I would say, is if you have to have a word, make it kli or kalim, and say, you know, Look at all these things. Look at all this stuff. What is this thing? Right? I think that is something that, you know, would, would work. I put all my things into my sack. Right? This is a context where Kli works very nicely and Davar definitely doesn't work. Okay? So that's probably what I would say. Davar for words, speech, affairs, events, actions, and so forth. Maybe leave out the object or use a prepositional phrase when you want to use thing. But if you need a go-to word for thing, probably kli or kalim is your best bet. Okay, so I encourage you to read Moshavi, look at the blog post, see the bibliography there. If you have any thoughts, I would love to get your comments in the blog post and hear about your teaching too. Thank you for listening. Lechul shalom.